to have you with us. Okay. I'm Pastor David Endorf. I'm hosting Casting Nets podcast because I have taken over today with Pastor Will Harley at a church in Wisconsin whose name completely escapes Maribel. me. It's Maribel. Maribel. St. Yeah. John's Maribel. There you yes. go. And I, I should know that because I, I was in Cleveland, Wisconsin, which is right by there. So I should be better. And Pastor Dave Rudat, who is at Emmanuel Shirley. I appreciate you having with us today because we're looking at kind of a, a pet project of mine, uh, which is uh, uh, a chart of Old Testament eras of God's people so that I can have a, a graphic, a learning tool for my members. And I'm looking for for feedback from my brothers in the ministry because there's a lot I don't know, which leads me right into the disclaimer of we're here having a conversation. We don't speak for our calling bodies. We don't necessarily speak for our synod. And we're going to be learning some as we go. So please follow the Eighth Commandment, take our words in the kindest possible way. And when something is said that triggers you, remember to talk to Pastor Will Harley about it at St. John's Maribel because it's probably his fault. <laughs> you know, this has probably been the most organized disclaimer. Straight <laughs> to the point. Straight into the point. Blame the person responsible. He used to like you. <laughs> I don't know why. Usually people like me until they know me. Uh. So... Um, and so part of part of the the impetus behind this is, you know, that the Old Testament is, you know, a unified narrative. You know, that's the the buzzword, and the, the reality is it's holy history. This is how God saved you. But the the impulse that comes from our sinful nature is to to be moralistic as we teach it, to teach each individual story as if there's a single moral lesson to learn from this story. And so I want to avoid that for myself. And I'm hoping to use this as a tool, um, both for my congregation and for myself. And then um, if anybody else wants to use it, go right ahead. So do we have uh, music to so, queue up before we start the conversation? Yes. Let's go. Now we're starting the conversation. We start it now. Start it now. Yeah. Okay. So as, as I was doing this, I divided the 
I, I focused only on part of Old Testament history, which is, uh, you know, God's people, uh, the descendants of Abraham. Uh, and I did that because you, you got to focus somewhere. There's only so much you can fit into a visual. The, the first era was the patriarchs. Uh, this is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see the dates there, 2100 to 1800 BC. The, the real threat here is the promise has been given to Abraham, but is it going to pass on from generation to generation? And so you, you see all these stories that people think of as being weird or odd and the when you put them in the context of you know god has this promise of a descendant of of eve that's been narrowed down to a descendant of of shem and now a descendant of abraham who's going to come and save you it makes a lot more sense god's showing you who that descendant is and and it becomes less weird and more this is the sinner God used to save you. And, and so you have, you know, these Genesis 12 to 50 uh, sections of, of Old Testament history where it, it focuses on how does it get from one generation to the next because that's the big threat. The next era is... Can, can, I, uh, can I just add to that era that we're in? Is that, do we want yes. to do that now, or do we want to wait until you introduce everything? Yeah, I think we should just go one era at a time. Okay. Then in the era that we're in, you know, when we, when you're, so that first column there, and I think this is just a vital thing that, that helps give some maybe um, clarification to those who are going to be looking at it. You're, you asked the question, you know, what God is, was doing to save and preserve the line of the Messiah. And, and really in there, you have like that beautiful opportunity to share that, you know, the Lord is appearing before his people, um, that, that you have, you know, he is, he's appearing and taking an active role. So it's, it's not just the age of Isaac and Jacob when God narrowed down his, but he's appearing to them. And he talked with Abraham, you know, he was there for Isaac um, in, in a way that, that maybe we don't get to see because of his physicality of taking a role in, in, this, in this type of se uh, segment of the, of the era of history. And then I had also, and, and I guess this is just me, but I really love how you were saying in the very beginning, um, we so much approach the Old Testament as this law-based thing. And what a way to come right out of the gate to say, during the patriarchs, we have the establishment of grace. You know, we have, um, not only does the Lord appear, not only does he take an active role, but he's establishing this concept of what grace is. You don't deserve it, but I'm giving it to you anyway. I, that's kind of the, I would, I would put it all into that line right under what is God doing um, it, as I was going through this. I even wrote notes. Man, you got me to write notes. <laughs> and I, I think, um, you know, as, as you say that, I've, I've long been a proponent that, you know, when understood properly, a lot of the Old Testament is pure gospel for us. 
because it is historic literature and it is a, a history of God's plan of salvation. You know, the words as they were first spoken to, you know, Moses were pure law. And, and, and I don't deny that. Like, God's not talking, but I'm not Moses. You know, I, I'm David Endorf here in Brooklyn Park. And, and so what it, what's being recorded is not, um, you know, what God is telling me to do. It's what God was telling, you know, Abraham to do because he was preserving the line of the Savior for my sake. Um, which is not to say we ignore the law or, or that we don't appropriate the message of the law that God gave to Abraham or, or anything like that, but that we understand, you know, and, and read it for, you know, God's purpose in, in inspiring it for us. But I think it comes back down to, you know, you have certain things that the Lord asked of Abraham and he failed to do and that the Lord still does. Um, you know, the Lord makes yes. a covenant with Abraham and doesn't even include Abraham in the covenant. <laughs> he just, he does both sides of it. Um, and, you know, you go, you go to, uh, you know, y- you deal with Moses as the, the one who has been given the opportunity to write this in the Pentateuch. Um, and really the law itself is pure grace in the sense that um, it declares what we are in Christ. So the things that the law says we are to be, they are ours because of Christ. Um, and so when you, when, I mean, the, the 10 commandments, we call them the 10 commandments, but the Lord calls them the Decalogue, the 10 words. Um, you shall be, you shall not be. Um, those are proclamations over his people. And, and he's really saying them through the, through the blood of Christ and saying, I, you are these things. You don't know it yet. You are these things because of Christ. Um, <clears throat> and then, and then we look at that and we're like, "Yeah, I can't do that, so we'll just throw it out anyway." Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that's in the next era. Well, we're still in. Uh, yeah, I know that. I, I understand that. Okay. But I, I'm, I'm saying, like here in in in, in Abraham, it, you know, this is this is the Lord taking an active role, and that's why you know you could really you could really start out in this section, and and yes, it is the age of Abraham. This is the age of the early church fathers, but this is the age where the Lord. The Lord appeared to them. Jacob wrestled with the Savior. You know, he, he wrestled with them. Yeah, and I, I really like how how you lay that out about there. There is a visible nature of God's work here that I think should be emphasized. And and I think part of what we part of what would be good to do is to also emphasize that you know. It's visible because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had a different role in God's plan of salvation. They had a unique role in God's plan of salvation. And so I don't expect God to wrestle with me the same way he did, you know, because that's not me. Yeah, I agree. I also recognize that part of the reason he, he did that with Jacob is because he does want to spend an eternity with me in heaven where he will be with me in a, a visible way. Sure. And, and so, you know, that, that understand, you know, we understand the nature, 
human nature that says, why doesn't God appear to me? You know, I would feel a lot better if God appeared to me. Um, and no, I agree with you. I, I, yeah, and probably I wouldn't because <laughs> I'm a sinner. Um, but also, I, I think a proper understanding of the Old Testament, and, and that's a good thing to put in here, is, you know, these are unique things. This is not meant to teach, you know, this is how God is going to work with you on a daily basis. It's, this is God's plan of salvation. And so that visible approach in the patriarchal area, I think, is a good thing. Yeah. And then I just nitpicking, just because, you know, um, it's good to nitpick. I, I, I just say, you know, that first line when it comes under the threats to the line of the Savior, it says the line had to carry on to the next generation. I, I kind of circled that and and just, you know, um, I, I guess if I, if it was me, I would, I would have probably rephrased it. The line needed to be um, established on promise to the next generation. Because, I mean, Abraham had a next generation. I mean, you could say Ishmael, right? But Ishmael was, was through the law, not through the promise. The promise was Sarah, who was barren, is going to have a, a child. Um, and so... I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I, would also, I, I would also say that in successive generations, and, and even starting with Abram and Sarai, there wasn't another generation. Right. And so, but there, but it was promise because he was promised, the Lord promised you're going to have a child. Sarah took it into her own hands to try to make that happen through Hagar. You have, um, you have Isaac and Rebecca and, and you have Rebecca. So let, let me finish here. And so what, what I'm saying is that that's the whole point of the, the narrative in this section is, you know, God had given the promise to you know abraham and now it has to be carried out by giving the next generation and then giving the promise to the next generation and and so you have to have both of those things fulfilled and so why is god so concerned about people having babies because that's how you have the line of the savior continue do, do you see what i'm saying I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I guess I, uh, again, I'm looking at this and maybe I'm approaching it from a different angle. I'm looking at it in the sense that you want to hand this out and someone's going to get a, a, a bird's eye view of the Old Testament. And the bird's eye mm -hmm. view of the Old Testament to me is, okay, the Lord appears, he's taking an active role, he's promising. And so he's establishing everything on his promise that he fulfills. And, 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 and I'm not saying that maybe, okay, maybe you don't take out that section that says the line had to carry into the next generation. Maybe we add in there, you know, established on promise or um, uh, fulfillment of promise or something because that, that, that Abrahamic promise is an important promise throughout the Old Testament that, that carrying on. And, and what I, I guess the, the point I'm going at is, Part of the promise was they were going to have a kid. Yes. You know, and, and so there was a very physical nature to the promise, you know, and so, so I, I think I'm going to just say that, you know, the, the, the first step of fulfilling the promise was having the next generation. Absolutely. And, 
and and that's the key to the patriarchal period is Abraham has to have Isaac and and Isaac has to have Jacob. Jacob. Yep. You know, and, and so let's not overthink things when we're interpreting sure. you know, Genesis 12 to 50. And and part of the reason that's important is because you know, there are, are people and and women and men who don't have kids who read Genesis 12 to 50 and are like, God was so concerned about having kids then. Why don't I have kids? And we got to understand and we got to be able to say, look, this is the effect of sin in this world. Right. And this is what God was doing then. And, and here's the difference. And this is what God's salvation means for you here and now in America. And, oh, and so we I'm recognize okay that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Lead us away. Unless there's something that Dave, Pastor Rudat, you got anything that you were going to add? No, everything's been said that I wanted to say. So let's uh, move on. Still all the good answers from you. Yeah. <laughs> Next era, let's go. So the next era is Egypt. Um, and this is where I think I would define, divide things differently. I think I would divide things. I would put Moses, Joshua, and Judges together. And I would put Egypt into like a footnote era. Because I see Egypt as kind of this greenhouse portion of um, you've got 72 people who go down to Egypt, you know, and, and God's people are, are in danger because God is being patient with the Canaanites. And so he's going to put, leave them safe in Egypt um, until they grow into a nation until the the sin of the Canaanites is full and he can bring them back and establish them in the promised land. And then the the time of Moses, Joshua, and Judges is, is very similar. You have um, tri- a tribe, everybody's kind of related, coming up out of the promised land but they don't really know their God. Um, you know, they, they have the law, but they don't have a culture and they keep, everybody keeps going their own way. They keep wanting to do things their own way and, and running away from God. And so God has to keep pulling them back. He has to keep calling them to repentance. Um, so I I like how you keep Egypt as a, a footnote. I think that's awesome. Um, I think judges the way you have it with judges as its own separate entity. I think that is that is a good place to have judges as a separate entity because there's something unique about judges that that gives you the wide scope of of each of the tribes having their own little tiffs and problems. The the one thing though that I would probably and this is only this is kind of only to keep it in um in the realm of, of um, 
gospel proclamation as possible as as you can. When you look at the the time of Moses and, and you look at the time of Joshua, I mean, yeah, you have the establishment of of God's commands, right? You have Exodus twenty where where the Lord gives His commands, but you also have the establishment of sacramental worship. Um, so you have you have the establishment of of um, the divine service that is is given in Leviticus, which is just a beautiful thing because you know you have. Um, you will make this burnt offering. There never in Leviticus is the word sacrifice even used. These are offerings. These are this is the arrangement that the Lord is saying, I'm going to use these things to keep my people holy. What an awesome opportunity to use that as the springboard to say the Lord is is giving us a foretaste of the work of Christ, right? And, and the sacramental aspect of of his working with people and being among them. Well, I understand what you're saying. Um, you know, that's not really my focus here because, um, you know, I, I would say that, that the purpose of the Mosaic law in that sense is to keep, you know, what Paul talks about in Galatians is to serve as a, uh, a pedagogos to keep the, the people together until Christ would come. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and so, but what does the sacrament do? The sacrament keeps us together. It, it, it the sacrament forges those bonds, right? But I don't want to import too much of Old Testament worship into New Testament sacramental worship. Um, and 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 that's not my focus, and that's not the point here. You know, I want to focus specifically on this is how God preserved the line of the Savior. Not to deny that there are, aren't other valid points to make, but, you know, th this is the purpose. Does that make sense? I do it appreciate. Oh, go ahead. I, no, do, go. I do appreciate that you're trying to always point it to Christ because it is such a, um, the, the culture of our, the Christian culture of our time has this proclivity to, to look at the Old Testament uh, as a term that this is what we need to get back to. And you're always in this whole thing. You're driving us towards Christ, but I think what Will was saying when he's talking about the sacramental nature of the Old Testament worship also is driving us to Christ and what Christ is going to do for us, so that it isn't uh, two separate systems—the New Testament system and the Old Testament system—but really one system of God serving us, but in different ways. One way in the Old Testament with the temple worship, and now through uh, word and sacrament. And, and I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that. When it comes to the limitations of how much you can fit onto a, a timeline, <laughs> I don't think you can get into the sacramental worship. You know what I mean? No, I, and I get what you're saying. I just, you know, it to me it seemed like a really good. Uh, it, it's it to me it seems like it's a it's a beautiful segue because you can come into the Moses era, and then you can connect that same the, the same desire to to receive God's blessings as David had when he gathered in the tabernacle and the desire for him to want to build the temple, which eventually is built during the time of Solomon. Why? Because it's that connection of preserving that relationship, right? It's the connection, and that's where. You know, part of the reason I want to have the timeline is so that as I'm preaching on a text, you know, I'm I'm free to dig deeper into specific areas because 
you know, the more of the context is there. Sure. You know, sure. So that people can say, you know, okay, David is building, you know, or, or Moses, you know, we're, we're talking about Moses. We're in that area. Okay. Moses, um, you know, they can look at the, the timeline and say, okay, Moses is leading God's people out of Egypt. They're barely a people right now because they've been in Egypt and they're re- they're related, but they barely know each other. And when God's establishing, you know, his worship and he's, he's leading them to the promised land for the first time. Right. And so people understand this is what's going on in the history of, of the, the people of Israel. So that when you then talk about, um, or like, like what we, we had not so long ago, the, the golden calf, you know, why were they so quick to, to, to fall away from God and worship the golden calf? Cause they'd been in, in slavery in Egypt for, um, you know, however many years and, and, and they were barely a people at that point in time. And they had all of this growing and maturing to do as a nation. And, and this is where the history is. And, and so that understanding is there. No, I can see that. I, and I, and I appreciate that as well. So, and so I'm not denying anything you're saying, sort of. Um. <laughs> no, I know you're not denying it. And like I said, and, and, and maybe it's just, you know, I, I looked at the headings when I approached this, I looked at the heading and you said, you know, what is God doing to say to, uh, doing to preserve that line? And part of that is, is establishing in my mind, a part of that is establishing the, the very, uh, thing that points to Christ, you know, so that there's that link there of of what he's eventually going to do. So much so that um, even in even in Moses, you have look here's the Lamb of God who takes away the the sin of the world. Um, you know, and the Passover and and the things of that nature. But that's fine. You know what? I that's that's perfectly fine. You, it's good. I like what you're saying. And I gotta say, this is this is really something I've gone back and forth over because there's a lot in the Old Testament where. You know, it is God saving an individual believer. And it's because God loved, you know, like God loved Moses and he wanted him to go to heaven. And so why does God act that way? You know, and and we don't necessarily preach about that, but that's part of why he did it. And I agree. I'm not I'm not opposed to what you said and how you said I'm just. Like I said, it, it, you know, I might be going back and using this, and I probably will. I might flush it out a little bit, and that's fine. Um, mm-hmm. And I get what you're saying. So, yeah. part of the conversation, right? You know, yes. I mean, my ideas are better, and that's fine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, if we, we look at that as Moses, as God's people coming up as barely a nation with Moses and Joshua, and then coming into the promised land, then, then judges would be that time of, um, you know, hardening, where um, you just have that continual cycle of God says, I'm going to rule my people directly. I'm going to be in charge. You're going to have priests. 
Uh, you're going to be able to consult the priests, and, and you're going to have fathers who are in charge, and this is how it's going to go. And and the people don't listen, and and they continually don't listen, and so you have these cycles of repentance uh, throughout judges and uh, you know and and this is a threat to our salvation because uh, you know god's people are going to get rid of themselves god's people are going to eradicate themselves um the what are your notes Dave, do you have anything? Um, I know I always appreciate it. I think in uh, seminary we learned about the the toilet bowl so, uh, cycle of, of God's people rebelling, and then uh, God, they cry out to God. God sends a judge. The judge rescues. There's a time of peace, but then they rebel again, and just just keeps going around and uh, doesn't. I think the only thing that is is consistent through the book of Judges is God's faithfulness to his people and his people's unfaithfulness to him. And I think yeah. this is such a, a good section to, to talk about the the saving action, activity of God, how he's always, it's always because he wants to save. So when Jesus comes on the scene, it's always because God wants him to be there, not because um, we as a society had gotten everything, our ducks in a row so that now the Savior can appear. But instead, it was everything had fallen apart, and now here comes the Savior. God has always been consistently faithful uh, to his promises and his and His people. I, I, I do like, if you're going to look at this in a big picture thing, and especially like I was mentioning before, the culture of Christianity today, which wants to go back to the time of uh, the sacrifices as if that's the high point of uh, religious life is we, we so often just make a dividing line between the judges and the tabernacle and the time in e- the wandering in Egypt. And I liked how you did that, Dave, where you just said, this is what follows. When God puts this sacramental system in place in the Old Testament, he gives them everything, gives them these offerings, he gives them all of this. What's the problem is God's people and their sin. Yeah, I really like how you tried to sum up the entire uh, book of Judges, and you did a great job. And and uh, again, I I like the swirling toilet. The only thing I guess I would I would add in in somewhere, and you can keep they had this cycle, right? The cycle of of being called to repentance, and maybe this is just because it's it's something that that I think we have to be drawn to the attention of in the book of Judges. They never they never become they never get to the to to where they were before. They start on a high and they gradually always go down. Even when they even when they repent, they're never back up to where they were before. They're still, you know, um, to the point where you get a judge like Samson, right? <laughs> Who is is probably the most crass of all the judges. Um, I mean, it, there's this something to maybe be said that that you know, as as sinful people in a sinful world. Um, you know, the, the faithfulness of our parents when we have fallen away and we come back to faith, we're never as faithful in the same way. Um, it, it's our sinful nature continues to erode even that away further and further. And so we need our savior. We need him. Yeah. And, and I, I think this is where, um, 
I, I think understanding, uh, you know, Old Testament history and, and its role in the plan of salvation helps with answering those questions about what we would otherwise call difficult Bible stories. You know, you have Samson at the end of his life who, who's blinded and, and is in the temple of Dagon, the, the fish-headed um, god of the Philistines. Yeah, and, and and he he prays, and people are um, laughing, <laughs> laughing, and 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 he becomes God's instrument of of judgment, and and you look at that, and and you understand that, you know, what what has happened here, you know, God has saved Samson. Because he was this crass judge that God loved, you know, and and, and yet God has also um, dem judged Dagon, the the fish-headed fertility god, to to demonstrate to his people he's he's not in charge, you know, that he can't help you, and so come back to the God who does save. And, and he has called his people to to faith to get them to heaven. He has preserved the line of the Savior so that Jesus can come into the world, you know, 1,100 years later to die for your sins and, and my sins. And, and he did that because he knows that we are crass like Samson is, and we need that forgiveness. And, and the real question is not, why would God answer Samson's, um, prayer. you know, yeah, kind of suicidal prayer? Uh, it, it's why would God love us so much that he would still carry out his plan of salvation when we're the type of people who pray like that? You know, and, and it's that love and grace that um, we see at a time like the judges that that helps us to understand how even when God is calling people to repentance by raising up the, the Midianites, he's still a loving God. And this is really his alien work, as Isaiah says. You know, he's still loving and caring. He's bringing his people back to him. Which then gives you the snapshot like of Ruth, where you, here it is. Here's here's now the family that's going to lead to lead to the Savior. Yeah, and I think for me, Ruth is is one of those books that really shows why pe God's people are, are so much in danger. Because they, they see the problems and the people keep leaving the promised land because uh, we can't live here. Yeah. And, and they need to, they need help because otherwise the Savior is not going to be born in the promised land. And this is a problem not just for, for Naomi and, and uh, it's a problem for us. And that's why God raises up. Um, the judges. It's why God is going to raise up Saul and, and David and, and Solomon. And why God provides us. Boaz. Absolutely. Who's in the line of the Savior. Yep. Just like Ruth. Yep. 
No, I really like what you did with the judges section. I, I, yeah, you know, our, our little comments are, are very minor. You summed it up beautifully. I think you did a, did a great job on that one. So. United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is the, the high point. Um, which I feel like I should say kind of tongue in cheek. It's the high point of, or with like a question mark, mark, like that's it. That's what you got. Um, you know, it starts out with King Saul because the people don't want God to lead them. They want to be like the nations that are around them. Um, and, and here you see even success is a problem. You know, it's a success. Success is a problem for Saul. Um, he takes it into his head that he can he can replace God's prophet and he can offer sacrifices as if being anointed king weren't enough for him. Um, it, David sins with Bathsheba. Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And yet God is doing this because this is what his people asked for. And, and more than that, he's doing this to narrow down the line of the Savior to King David and to David's descendant so that not only can he, he preserve the line of the Savior, and send Jesus into the world, but we can recognize him when he comes, because that's the the other part of the old of Old Testament history that's also key, is that the Savior has to come, but we also have to know him when he shows up, and you know David is so very key to that, um, with the Psalms, with the prophecies. Um, and that's uh, well in those the United times, Kingdom. In in that United Kingdom time, don't you have you know the 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 line of the Savior showing themselves as prophet, priest, and king? I mean, you have David who who offers sacrifices. You have him who is a prophet writing the Psalms. You have him the king of the the people. You have uh, Solomon himself who uh, when he when dedicates the temple he's offering sacrifices he's he's praying on behalf of the people as as the priest um he's prophesying in the scriptures as he's writing the the psalm or uh, uh, proverbs and the song of songs um so you have these art you have these these um these types of christ seeing being seen in the the prominent old testament figures of the line of christ himself um you have these these people being seen yeah. I'll, I'll grant you prophet and king. You know, do they offer sacrifices or do they give yeah. sacrifices to the priests? In First Kings, in First Kings, Solomon offered the sacrifices and prayed before the people. Okay, and he led the people in prayer. Hmm. Um, I would also add with the uh, the wisdom literature in solomon uh what what people often get wrong about proverbs and the song of solomon and and so on is 
in Ecclesiastes is, you know, here he's addressing all of the sins that so often led the nation of Israel astray. You know, and so you have Proverbs 31, which is addressed to, um, you know, his son. It's not addressed to women. You know, here women, this is what you should be like. It's addressed to men. Here men, this is the type of wife you should be looking for. Um, because what's the problem in the, the Old Testament? It, it is so many believing husbands finding unbelieving wives. And it's Solomon who has 700 unbelieving wives who, who can clearly say, don't do what I did. And he's right. And, or you have, or, or you can take it where Solomon learned that his very first wife was the believing one and he should have stopped there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll guess. Yeah. But yeah, I think you have that beautiful, you have the beautiful words of wisdom that are just littered with, don't do what I did, right? You know, been there, done that. Yeah. And, and so we, we find Jesus there, you know, because God is using sinners to save us. Absolutely. I like it. So far, so good. I think you're putting together a... Uh, a well thought out plan. Now it all falls apart. <laughs> it all falls apart. Uh, we got to keep people interested in somehow. Yeah. Yes. Cracks are showing, Dave. The cracks are so, showing. The cracks are showing. The cat is. I gotta say, Rehoboam has one of my favorite speeches in all of the Old Testament. Um. If you thought my dad was bad, I am going to be worse. That's your um, favorite speech? Yeah. Like, cause it's, it's like the dumbest thing ever. And, and I just marvel at that. Every time I read it, it's like, how dumb are you? You say this. I'm pretty sure Solomon wrote that in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> This is this is why he despaired about leaving his hard work to the next generation because yep. he knew Rehoboam. Yep. Um, and so you have the divided kingdom where Solomon's son Rehoboam causes essentially a civil war between the north and the south. Uh, the civil war, or the north. Uh, you have Jeroboam, the son of Nabat who essentially leads the North into idolatry um, and, and destruction. You have, what is that, 200, 300, 200 years worth of idolatry and a call to repentance, and they never do it, and so they end up being destroyed. The South has... Um, you know, a, a much longer time where they actually do repent. But uh, the problem in the South is that um, the, the kings who keep getting assassinated or replaced and, and the line of David that keeps getting threatened is the line of the Savior where we're supposed to 
find salvation. And, and this is the problem for us. And this is where Babylon is so very different from Assyria. Whereas Assyria comes in and and essentially keeps the peace by killing everybody. Uh, Babylon keeps the peace by um, uh, capturing the the leaders and taking them back to Babylon and 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 putting them to work. And and for us, that's a good thing because. You know, who are the leaders in Jerusalem at this time? It, it's the house in the line of David. And so God sees this this plant where, you know, the, the branches keep committing suicide and, and needing to be trimmed off. And, and he's using one sinner to punish another sinner. And he raises up Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to, to rescue us. And he plants that that sprout uh, in Babylon, which we'll get to in a minute. Could could we say that during that t- this time period of the divided kingdom, a lot of this all rests on on uh, the struggle with trust? I mean, yeah, I, I, yes, it's focused heavily on idolatry. It's it's um, you know the 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 north's rejection of having them worship in in Jerusalem because they they admit if there's a combined worship we're going to be a combined people um <clears throat> but is this a, a matter of mistrust because i mean in the southern kingdom you have them placing their trust in Egypt again they turn to Egypt to be their protectors you have them placing their trust in in their armaments placing their trust in their northern um fellow brothers of the the northern tribes at some point you know will be banded together to do this instead of the lord Trust in the Lord. The Lord will win this out. The Lord will do this work. Do you think that's maybe a, a, a point that you you want to put? I mean, you have some you have you have some very be, uh, beautifully strong, faithful kings in in Judah um, who place their trust in the wrong people. I think that's a really good point. Um, and and I think even when it comes to the idolatry, you know, it, it's a matter of who do you trust to provide for you? Do you trust the, and they never say it this way, but, you know, they should say, do you trust the creator of the heavens and the earth? Or do you trust a, a piece of wood that you've carved to look like a, a false god? And the answer is they trusted the false gods right and so i i, th- I like that yeah yeah that would be my only addition to that section just that struggle with trust who do we trust babylon not the series babylon 5 the greatest science fiction series ever except for star wars Ever. <laughs> Except for the Clone Wars. Ever. <laughs> I'd even put Star Trek above it. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. All right. So the Babylonian exile. You have um 70 years where God says, 
Um, I'm going to give the land rest. And he gives the land a year of rest for every year of jubilee that uh, you did not celebrate that you should have. And, and then I'm going to bring you back and reestablish the promised land. And, and the first half of the Babylonian exile is, um, you know, a call to repentance. It, it's pulling them out of that um, sin and, and death of everything that's going on in Jerusalem and saying, look, they're eating themselves. Uh, and that, I don't know how else to put it. Um, and, and then you have the destruction of the temple and and it switches to comfort, you know, that, yeah, things look bad now, but you will go back. The, the promised Savior will be born in Bethlehem and or in the promised land, and God's people will be reestablished. The remnant will return. So is this a time that you introduce maybe um, just in the write-up or in your, in your saying, you know, um, the tree has to be cut down because it's the, it's, it's from the stump that a shoot will come. See, and this is part of where I, I had a hard time trying to, to say where, where do you cut down the tree? The temple's do you cut gone. it down. Yeah. Do you cut it down at the end of Judea or do you cut it down during the Babylonian exile? I, I would say the end of Judea when they fall, because because to them the temple was the huge thing, right? That that that, that yeah. and I, I think the kingdom too, because the the king is gone forever. After they don't have a king after the fall of Babylon or uh, after the fall of Jerusalem. I think you can make that that second phase. So the second phase of the exile takes place after the destruction of the temple uh, in Jerusalem. That is that that there are no more kings. That's kind of where I would make that maybe. But I, but I think it's kind of beautiful. You have that good segue. The tree had to come down. It was rotten. It had to come down. Yeah, absolutely. It just did. And and as much as I would like to to take credit for it, you know. The, Taking the tree down? Uh, no, the picture. I kind of oh. <laughs> cribbed that from, what is it, Ezekiel 17 and the the. Yeah. Picture of the two cedars and yeah. No, I just think that, I think putting that in there, um, you know, because you have so many things in the New Testament, you know, from the from the stump of Jesse. Um, what does that mean? Why did what didn't this happen? This is a good time period for us to say this is when it happened. This this was the the end. Yeah. And and part of this is because I want um people understand when we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when we're talking about Daniel, um why was God with them in a special way? God was with them in a special way because you know things weren't right. You know, God's people were in exile. And 
you know, they had to be preserved because they had just seen, you know, the, the temple destroyed. They had to go back and rebuild. You know, this is a crisis moment in God's people. And, and so why doesn't God, um, you know, send his angels to take care of us the same way he did um, with, you know, Daniel in the lion's den? Because we're in vastly different situations. And, and, yeah. and so... And, you know, that's an interesting thing because, you know, you you have three deportations, right, of the people mm-hmm. of Israel, um, and, and Daniel would have been taken in the first. And then you so you go back and you say, okay, how many years from the first to the, to the very end are we actually looking, you know? Was the temple still around when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den? You know, um, that would have probably been done because that was Darius, right? Um, Nebuchadnezzar, though? with Nebuchadnezzar still around where was the temple gone at that point? Um, you look at some of those things and you say, at what point did the temple uh, it, it, before the fall of Babylon, but it was Daniel and, and Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego still are substantiated in Babylon. Now their, their life is there. Um, you might want to include in this era though, something interesting. And, and I try to highlight it when I try to teach this time, um, is that, you know, Ezekiel tells us that he saw the spirit of the Lord depart from the temple and follow his people to the east. So you have the the spirit of God leaving the temple, right? His presence is no longer there, but it's with his people who are in exile, which is just a, a beautiful, beautiful picture of God didn't leave them, even though they were being disciplined. Yeah, I do. <clears throat> that was one of my reactions too. When you're talking about the ebb and flow of God activity in the life of His people, where we would look at some activity as more important or more uh, visible, and then we would say, "Well, that God is really there." But as we're going through this whole section, God is always with His people. Just manifests itself in different times it doesn't mean that oh because he makes an appearance in the in the furnace that therefore that is a more real presence of of god than when god's when the fathers were reading god's word to their or leading their families in worship in the exile i mean he's still there and i think for me that was a good uh, reminder of throughout the old testament god is always there even though sometimes it's very visible he's still there it's not as if he is, you know, 100% present or 90% present. He's always present. Just the visible nature is more, and we shouldn't put more value to the visible nature, the visible presence of God compared to what where he promises to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, you know, you, you have what Thomas, what God says to Thomas, blessed are those who believe and who have not seen. Um. And and at the same time, you know, you you have the example of Hezekiah who prays for twenty more years, and and God says you can have the twenty more years, but I was doing it for your good, I was doing it to to save you, and and recognize, um, you know, we don't want to have that earthly focus of, uh, you know, success here on earth. 
Sure. And, and mm-hmm. sure. And and focusing too much on the the or misunderstanding Old Testament history by missing the line of the Savior can lead to those kind of prayers that I just want earthly success. And I, I, I miss the the growth of the kingdom and and yeah. forget. God's getting us to heaven. God's getting us to the resurrection, and that's what's important. And if, if, and so not my will, but God's be done, because He's way smarter than I am. So we lost Will. I'm back now. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Finally, rebuilding. Finally rebuilding Jerusalem, uh, Cyrus the Great sends the Jews home to rebuild. Um, the people don't want to leave Babylon. They made a life for themselves, and they have to be forced by lottery to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, and even then, in Jerusalem... Uh, you know, you you have the good and the bad. They they rebuild. They are are, are rebuilding the walls with a, a trowel in one hand and a, a sword in the other. But then they they get their houses built and they stop building God's house. And so God has to call them to repentance. And and like the 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 student who waits too long, uh, they do a rush job and a poor job of the second temple, and everybody sees it and weeps. And God's gracious promise is, I'm going to send my son, and and because he's going to be there, the glory of this second temple is going to be greater than the first. So can I can I just say that this is a beautiful opportunity for one maybe maybe also an addition to that, sure. the connection or the reestablishment of the Passover. They they come back and the the Ark is gone, so the Day of Atonement is gone, but the Passover becomes the celebration. It's a reclaiming of the uh, the initial promise before the Mosaic Covenant. Um. Uh, the promise of redemption through the lamb, which becomes the the key to here's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Jesus coming into the holiday of, of Passover to give his life. Um, I mean, you have this establishment right now in this return from exile. Um, what an awesome thing to say, you know, the, the, that connection is now here. Because that that leads us into the New Testament, right? Why was the Passover this huge? Why was the Passover the huge holiday? Because throughout the entire Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was the huge holiday, right? The the Day of Atonement was the the one. But why is the Passover the one now? Because that's what they got. They they can't do anything else. Well, and it, it's not just the Passover. It's you know you you have the the three pilgrim festivals, and you know, and so part of it is they learn too well 
the lessons of the Babylonian exile. And maybe too well is the wrong way of putting it. You know, they become legalistic, sure. you know, and they become way too legalistic. And so, okay, we didn't keep the laws the right, we didn't keep the laws and God sent us into exile. Now we're going to keep the laws to an, um, legalistically, and, and that'll be the way we succeed. Yeah, they don't see it as grace. No. I totally agree. Totally agree. But at the same time, um, you know, picking that one aspect of Second Temple Judaism and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, this is the time that had fully come for Jesus to be born, to die for our sins, where he can, in Bethany, raise Lazarus from the dead after four days, clearly demonstrating his power as the Son of God and the Lord of life, and have that crowd walk with him from Bethany to greet the crowd coming out of Jerusalem who proclaim him the Son of David, and, and then walk into the temple and, and find it to be a den of robbers that needs to be cleansed. And... And, and find it to be a place where, you know, the leaders of the Jews will hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. You know, and, and so all of that with the, the rebuilding in Jerusalem to the intertestamental period is, you know, God being silent to prepare the world for Christ. Yeah. Because you, you think about how crazy it is that people would see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and then shout, crucify him. Um, but they were so focused on their position and their authority and their wealth that they were willing to do that. Um I think you also have, and in the, I'm not saying write it in your paper, but you have beautiful opportunities to, to start saying, you know, why were there synagogues everywhere? Well, the exile, they, they didn't have a temple. So they, they created places for prayer and where they would learn those places are established, you know, right after. Why do they have a problem with the Samaritans? This happened after the exile. They came back and people had already established themselves there, you know, that intermingling. Now there's this hatred of of the people who, the Israelites, this is our land against those who, who were there before and who are now this intermixed type of, of blood. You have so many connections in this time period that you can talk to to say, this is, like you said, preparing us for the coming of of the work of the Messiah and, and, and the, then the framework that he walks in on, um, when he walks into time, um, is being primed right now. Yeah. And, and this, this is where I didn't know where to stop because, you know, I want to talk about how did, how did everybody speak Greek? That the New Testament could go to the ends of the earth. How how do you have the the peace of Rome so that you know a, a child could carry a bag of gold to you know from one end of the empire to another safely? And you, you think about how ludicrous that was at, at at any time in history. You know that didn't happen. But now 
you know, missionaries can go out safely, you know, because God wanted his, the gospel proclaimed because, you know, the, the purpose of his plan of salvation was to, you know, both send Jesus into the world and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, um, yeah, yeah, so where you do have you all of these that? things together. Yeah, and and really, you, I mean, where do you stop? Because there's so much going on in the world scene, and so much going on <clears throat> amongst God's people. Um, I, you did a great job. I, I, I know that I, I, we have little criticisms here and there, just you know, because you know each person thinks of what's more important and how do we want to have our people have it. But you did a great job of trying to take this this entire library of God's history with his people and try to condense it in a couple of pages to say, I'm just trying to give you an idea so that you see Christ through it, because the Old Testament is not some it's not a different God acting in a different way. It's the same God always acting in the same way, leading to him coming to act for you. Yeah, I agree. And it's not an, the Old Testament is not an era that we're trying to get back to. It's an era that's uh, trying to lead us to Christ. And then as we're living here in this New Testament era, again, we are being led uh, to Christ, not just in word and sacrament, to, but for him coming again at the end of all things. I think unless you have more, you got more in store for us, Dave? Um, Are you going to lead us into the gospel? <laughs> I don't know. How much more time do I have? Because I got... The challenge was to do this in an hour, and now we're at an hour and 11 minutes. So we're, it's pretty good. It's pretty good as pastors go. If yeah. we say we're going to talk about the Old Testament, about all this stuff that we've studied and we are passionate about because it always talks about Christ, um, and we're going to try to condense it to a to an hour, even though we might focus on different things, we're still all three of us are all focusing on Christ in some way, shape, or form. Okay, so my last point is: you hear a lot of people complaining online about the the tax census you know why would joseph go back to um bethlehem you know because they they didn't uh have they didn't do taxes that way they'll say you know that you went back to this random city you were from you know and and that's part of the rebuilding era in jerusalem is when they came back to rebuild in jerusalem Everybody was given land the exact same way they were given land when they settled in Jerusalem the first time. And so the house in the line of David were given land in Bethlehem. And, and Joseph, who was the house in the line of, of David, would have had land there. And, and as a faithful Jew, even though he was a carpenter, he wouldn't have sold it. He would have rented it, and he'd have still been a landowner in Bethlehem. And so when there's a, a census declared of the entire Roman world, he'd have had to go to Bethlehem because that's where he owned land, and that's where they and that's how they did things. And and so, 
you have these people who have no understanding of of Jewish culture objecting because they have no understanding of the culture and the setting and and yet here God had set things up for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem in Judea um you know 400 years before Jesus would come and, and die for our sins. And, and the same God who prepared for your salvation that way is the same God who still watches over you. So the, the problems you're going to face now, God already prepared to fix before the creation of the world when he prepared to die for your sins. And so he will watch over you and take care of you. And and that's why we have peace, because of God's love and forgiveness, because he's going to care for you and watch over you.